are listening to booze bullshit and shoe crime i'm brie i'm wade we're gonna talk about some gnarly shit gnarly gnarly <laughs> yeah mine, mine's pretty fucking gnarly um we decided to title this episode boom goes the dynamite kind of tongue-in-cheek <laughs> um both of our episodes or episode stories i guess you would say have uh, a bomb involved yup so boom goes the dynamite well, my story I know is long as fuck, so we might as well jump right into it. Is yours long? Yeah, pretty long. Okay. Well, good thing I only did like half a page of background. <laughs> yeah. I thought this stuff would get pretty dry anyways, so I just kind of wanted to do the most brief overview of what a bomb is. Um, a bomb is an explosive weapon that uses exothermic reaction of an explosive material to provide an extremely sudden and violent release of energy. Detonations inflict damage principally through ground and atmosphere transmitted mechanical stress. The impact and penetration of pressure-driven projectiles, pressure damage, and explosion-generated effects. Bombs have been utilized since the 11th century, starting in Asia. So basically, they blow shit up. Yup. Black powder. <laughs> bang, bang. The military use of the term bomb, or more specifically aerial bomb, typically refers to airdropped unpowered explosive weapons most commonly used um, in the Air Force and Naval Aviation. What are you laughing at me for? Nothing. Other military explosive weapons not classified as bombs include shells, depth charges, which are used in water, and landmines. In unconventional warfare, other names can refer to a range of offensive weaponry. For instance, in Middle Eastern conflicts, homemade bombs called improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, have been employed by insurgent fighters to pretty great effectiveness, unfortunately. Yes. Um, the word bomb comes from the Latin word bombus, which in turn comes from the Greek word bombos, and that term meant booming or buzzing. There are a few different components of bombs, the first being shock. Shock waves are produced by explosive events. Um, also heat. A thermal wave is created by the sudden release of heat caused by an explosion, and fragmentation happens as well. That's produced by the acceleration of shattered pieces of bomb casing, as well as whatever the bomb is filled with. Like, wasn't it the Boston, what was it, Marathon, where they filled it with, like... Yeah, there's a few different ones there. Nails and shit. Mm-hmm. That's pretty bad. Well, like I said, my case is really long, um... There's a lot that goes into it, so I might as well get started. I decided to do my case this week on the Pizza Bomber, also known as the death of Brian Wells, because he was the victim here. Um, if you hadn't heard of this case before, it is nuts. There was just a Netflix documentary yeah. that Wade and I watched. It's called uh, Evil Genius on Netflix, and I liked it. Did you that like was it? Pretty, it was really good, actually. Yeah, it was Netflix did a good job. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a really good um, documentary, I thought. And I had heard of the case, but I didn't know details on it. So I saw that, and it got me really interested. So I pulled from that. I also got a lot of my information from Wired.com, and then a little bit of my info from an article on People.com. At 2.28 p.m. on August 28, 2003, a 46-year-old man named Brian Wells walked into PNC Bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. He entered carrying a short cane in his right hand and had a large, uh, strange bulge underneath the collar of the front of his t-shirt. You can see video footage of this from the bank. Wells proceeded to a teller window and handed a note over to the teller. It read, in part, Gather employees with access codes to vault and work fast to fill bag with $250,000, it said. You have only 15 minutes. Then he lifted his shirt to reveal a heavy, box-like device dangling from his neck. According to the note, it was a bomb. The teller, who told Wells there was no way to get into the vault at that time, filled a bag with cash. 
$8,702 to be exact, and handed it over. Wells walked out, sucking on a dum-dum lollipop that he grabbed from the counter, hopped into his car, and drove off. And pause, but I just stopped working at a bank recently (laughs) and i was terrified of being around when something like this happened and also fyi wade and i are gonna be working together now oh my gosh so if a podcast episode doesn't get released you know what happened i don't know (laughs) we killed each other because we were so sick of each other that's true (laughs) That could possibly happen. We're going to be consulting utility foresters, which is something he's done, but I've never done before. Um, I'm pretty stoked to be hiking around in the woods. Yeah, should turn out pretty good. That was quite a tangent. Sorry, guys. All right, so banks are scary. Anyways, Wells got in the car, drove off. Um, A strange scene would then ensue that would make this case the subject of international news coverage for the ensuing days, months, and even years. Wells didn't get very far away from the bank. About 15 minutes after the robbery, state troopers tracked Wells down when he was spotted standing outside of his Geo Metro. Oh <laughs> yeah, in a parking lot nearby. The troopers acted fast and they surrounded him. They tossed him into the pavement and cuffed him with his hands behind his back. Wells' story to the troopers was this. He stated he had been accosted by a group of, of course, unnamed black men who forcefully put a bomb around his neck and ordered him to rob the bank or the bomb would be detonated. The bomb was stra- the bomb was this strange bulge seen under his t-shirt and the bomb was still connected to him. And i.e., it was not a group of black men. That was just his excuse and that was his go-to mm-hmm. differentiating adjective. Um, Wells was begging for his life as the device fastened around his neck began to beep. Then it started to beep louder and faster. He yelled to the state troopers over and over again, It's going to go off. I'm not lying. And the officers called the bomb squad. And the officers proceeded to take cover behind their patrol cars with their guns drawn and cleared the surrounding area. TV news crews then began to show up on the scene and they filmed the entire ordeal. Wells remained seated on the pavement for 25 minutes. At one particularly sad point in the standoff, Wells asked a trooper, Did you call my boss? Concerned his employer would think he was skirting on his duties. He had worked at the pizzeria he was employed by for over 10 years. Out of all those 10 years, he had only called in sick one day when his cat died. And if you can stomach it, it's really upsetting, but I know you saw clips of it during the documentary we watched um, on YouTube. There's clips of this news footage, and it's really sad. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. You can see he's really, he really didn't know what was going on, but he knew that that bomb was going to blow up. Yeah, it was really, really sad. He didn't really know why they weren't helping him. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, you gotta stop doing that, because we're doing fucking spoilers now. You did. I know, but I'm horrible at giving (laughs) gifts and spoilers. News cameras continued to roll when the bomb finally exploded, broadcasting Wells' death from multiple angles live. The explosion blew a five-inch hole in the middle of his chest, and Brian took a few last breaths and died there on the pavement at 3.18 p.m. The bomb squad arrived only three minutes later. Because officers had cleared the area traffic um, in the surrounding area, so they, they completely cleared everything around, it became very congested um, on the outskirts around the scene. And because of this, the bomb squad you know, could have possibly arrived earlier. But because the traffic was mismanaged, that didn't happen. Again, nobody's fault, but it's just kind of like, damn, three minutes. Yep. Is what they missed him by. Authorities during the investigations had to remove Wells' head to get the device off of his body. His family was unable to have a viewing of him because of this, and they promptly sued the city. Um, but, not that I think it's not fucked up that they just cut this dude's head off, but they said that there was no other way to get the collar off besides decapitating him. So even if they would have had a viewing, would they have wanted to have a viewing with a bomb around his neck still? 
there was a way to cut it off. There's no way. They probably didn't want to destroy the integrity of the device itself. Okay, I guess that's true. He's already dead. Hmm. And they did it in the field, too, didn't they? Yeah. They, they had to clear the scene, so what they had to do is take the device off to determine if it was active still or not. And the only way to do that, because they didn't know if it was active or not, is cut his head off. Yeah, so just, like, and on they, the pavement, on they the just pavement saw just... this poor dude's head right off. I don't even know if they saw it, but, yeah. I mean, how else do you take a head off besides a saw? True. You can't, like... Because I, didn't, I didn't, haven't seen all of the footage. And I haven't honestly, either. It's too sad. Yeah, honestly, when you watch the Netflix series or movie, then I just kind of left it at that. I didn't go any further, and it will look at YouTube like you did. Yeah, it's really disturbing. And I always do this to myself. I pick the cases that are really, really depressing, and I find no humor. So, <laughs> so sorry. Life's about <coughs> valence. The police began sorting through a trove of physical evidence. In Wells' car, they discovered the two-foot-long cane, which I had mentioned he had walked into the bank with, and it turned out to be an ingeniously crafted homemade gun. Um, I'll try and remember when I post that this episode is going live on social media to post a picture of this cane gun. It's legit as fuck. It is. <laughs> it looks pretty much like a cane. Like, it still looks... Halfway suspicious, but it's literally just like a gun with an extra long barrel that looks like a cane. It's amazing. But it was made out of a cane. They they made this gun somehow. I'll post it. I'll post it. The bomb itself that was around uh, Brian's neck was a marvel of DIY design and construction, just like the hand cane gun thingy <laughs> was the device consisted of two parts a triple banded metal collar with four keyholes and a three digit combination lock and an iron box containing a two inch pipe bomb um oh no containing two six inch pipe bombs excuse me loaded with double base smokeless powder the hinged collar locked around wells's neck like a giant handcuff Investigators could tell that it had been built using professional tools, so, like, tools that you'd find in a machine shop. Mm -hmm. The device also contained two Sunbeam kitchen timers and one electronic countdown timer. So, Sunbeam kitchen timers are like the ones that you twist around when you're making pasta, and they ding. Yeah, that. The bomb also had wires running through it that connected to nothing, decoys to throw off the would-be disablers if the bomb, bomb squad had shown up on time, and stickers bearing deceptive warnings. The contraption was a puzzle in of itself. Out of all the physical evidence, the most perplexing was a handwritten note that investigators had found inside Brian's car. The letter was addressed to bomb hostage and contained detailed instructions, threats, and hand-drawn maps. The letter instructed Wells to rob PNC Bank of $250,000, followed by a set of complex instructions to find various other notes and keys hidden around the town of Erie. It was stated that if Wells did as he was told, he would locate the keys and combinations required to free himself of the bomb. It also stated that failure to follow the instructions would certainly result in death. Um, and I couldn't detail all of it because it would take too long, and babe, I don't remember if it said in the documentary or not, but it was literally like a little kid scavenger hunt. Yeah, it says it shows a picture of the note in the documentary. Like this poor again. We gotta stop talking about the documentary. We're spoiling it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a shit. Um, but he, it's literally like go to, you know, the flower bed off of the one forty five exit, past town, and pull over, and you pull over, and then there's another note that like it was, it was ridiculous, and. You have a bomb around your neck, and you're driving around the city trying to find little pieces of paper and bottles. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> now time to geocache. I robbed this bank. An excerpt from the note read as follows. There is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. This powerful, booby-trapped bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Act now! Think later! Or you will die! All in caps. 
It seemed whoever had constructed the bomb and note had planned a nightmare scavenger hunt in which Brian's prize was his own life. In a bizarre twist, it was not possible for Wells to complete the instructions given in enough time to disable the bomb. The officers also verified that um, the bomb could never be safely removed either way. Wells would have run out of time before the device detonated, but even if he would have disabled it, he still couldn't have gotten it off. Yeah. Um, Wells' clothing added another layer of mystery to the case. He died wearing two t-shirts. So one he had been seen wearing that day at work, because he had worked a full shift that day, and that was the first layer. And then there was the bomb around his neck, and then there was the second shirt. And that shirt seemed to have appeared out of nowhere. It was a guest t-shirt, and it was put on him at some point to hide the bomb attached to his neck. His friends and family said that they had never seen this shirt before, so it wasn't one that they believed yeah. he owned. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of fucked up. Like, it's a guest shirt. It just says guests across it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of like tongue-in-cheek? Guess who did this? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm lame. The investigation began at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria to kind of track down, you know, how all this started and who was the one that had threatened Brian with the collar bomb. Mamma Mia's Pizzeria is where Wells was working his shift at 1.30 p.m. on the day of the wobbly, day of the robbery. An order came in for two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas, which... They stated that detail in every single article I looked at. Yeah. And I looked at like six articles and all of them were like, two small pepperoni and sausage pizzas. Very important. Um, they were supposed to be delivered to a location on the outskirts of the city. And even though this order came in at the end of Brian's shift, he did agree to deliver the order, being the good employee he was. He walked out of the pizzeria around 2 p.m. with two pizzas in tow. The location of the pizza delivery ended up being a TV transmission tower. It was only accessible by a dirt road in a wooded area off of busy Peach Street in town. Or outside of town, actually. I think the street ran all the way through town, but this was like towards the edge. Officers surveyed the area, discovering shoe prints that matched the shoes Wells was wearing that day, as well as tire tracks matching that badass motherfucking Geo Metro. <laughs> the site, however, did not offer clues as to who may have lured Brian there or what had happened once he had arrived with those um, sausage and pepperoni pizzas. Too small. Oh, yeah. Too, too small sausage mm -hmm. and pepperoni pizzas. There you go. The following day, two Erie Times news reporters headed down to that TV transmission tower area. <laughs> what are you laughing at me for? The dirt road leading to the tower was guarded by authorities, obviously. It was all cornered off. They were doing an investigation. The reporters noticed a tall, heavyset man in a denim Carhartt overall set pacing in front of a home that sat near the transmission tower. So basically, it was like the next door neighbor to that, and it was as far as they could go that wasn't cornered off. The man identified himself as 59-year-old Bill Rothstein. Ow, I just punched my knuckle on the table. Rothstein was an unmarried handyman and lifelong resident of the area. He was a very eloquent speaker and he seemed highly intelligent. Rothstein seemed oblivious to the investigation unfolding beyond his backyard. The journalists, eager to get a view of the scene, asked him if he could lead them through his backyard. He agreed. They headed into the thick brush, but they still couldn't see much once they got to the edge of his property. And after spending about 15 minutes at Rothstein's place, the reporters took off. Bill Rothstein may have appeared to be just a man who owned a house next to the TV tower, but he turned out to be hiding a dark secret. On September 20th, less than a month after the bomb killed Wells, Rothstein called 911. Um... I actually listened to the 911 call. They have, like, the audio clip of it on YouTube, and mm -hmm. he seems very oddly calm. But in part of the 911 call, he says, At 8645 Peach Street in the garage, there's a frozen body. 
he told the police dispatcher, and he was referring to his own address. He said, it's in the freezer. Within hours of that 911 call, Rothstein was in custody. He had cooperated with authorities, and I think, didn't he show up at the um, police station after he called? I don't think so. I don't know. I think he surrendered I himself. I think he did. Don't quote me on that. No, because... No, because they came to his house, because I remember they were talking about it, and he was really arrogant and pompous when they were walking around his house, and then at the end of it, he pretty much was saying that, you know, I'm a lot smarter than you guys, the only reason oh, why yeah. you're here is because I invited you in. And I told you that this body exactly, was here. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, this guy seemed was, like a dick. Yeah, he thought he was something of, you know, he was something special. To be fair, this guy looked like a dick. I'll post pictures of him, too. He just has one of those faces. Yeah. Um, he relayed to the cops that this dark secret had been weighing on him tremendously and that he was in agony over the whole thing, the body in his freezer. He also stated that he was on the verge of committing suicide and had already written a suicide note in preparation. Investigators located the suicide note in a desk of Rothstein's within his home. The note detailed that the body in the freezer was that of Jim Roden. Oh, I'm so sorry. His name was James Roden. That was a typo. It noted that he did not kill Roden or participate in his death. The note also ended with a curious disclaimer. This has nothing to do with the Wells case, which, um, mm -hmm. if it didn't, then that's a very weird thing to state. And that comes in later. Over the following days, Wells detailed to authorities... Oh, not Wells. <laughs> Rothstein. Wells Jeez. is dead. <laughs> Wells has a fucking huge ass hole in his chest and no head. Oh my god. What? It's accurate. Be a little sensitive. I'm sorry. Gosh. I gotta find some levity somewhere. So, over the following days, Rothstein detailed to authorities how the body had ended up in his freezer. He said in mid-August, an ex-girlfriend of his named Marjorie Deal Armstrong, <laughs> who looks just crazy as fuck. She just looks like Not so. she's going to jump through the photograph and shank you. Yeah. She, she really does. I'll post pictures of her, too. Um, Rothstein and her dated in the 1960s and early 1970s. Armstrong and Rothstein had a bizarre relationship, with Rothstein still pining for Armstrong years after their breakup and appearing to be willing to do anything she asked of him. And I remember them saying in the documentary that she would call him when, like, her faucets were leaking or, like, handyman shit, and he'd, like, yeah. run over and fix it. Armstrong told Rothstein that she had shot her current boyfriend, James Roden, in the back with a 12-gauge shotgun during a dispute over money and needed help concealing the body and cleaning up the crime scene inside her home, which appeared to be about 10 miles from Rothstein's place near the transmission tower. I don't care how good that pussy is. You're going <laughs> to... Yeah, but if, when you see this guy, you'll understand. You're going to conceal... But you saw her! She's gross! It's not like he was true sprung on her because she was gorgeous or anything like that. I, it just blows my mind. Um, Rodin was not the first man that Marjorie had killed or even the only man that had died around her. Armstrong fatally shot Robert Thomas, her then-boyfriend, in 1984, but was acquitted after arguing self-defense. Richard Armstrong, her husband in 1992, died from a cerebral hemorrhage, after which she won a malpractice suit against the hospital where he was treated. But get this, what's really fucking weird is he had a head injury when he was admitted to the hospital, when Richard was. And it was notated in the documents, like in the medical documents, but it was never submitted to the medical examiner for autopsy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So she, it just flew under the radar. <coughs> she was never questioned about it. But people seem to think that she, she did hit him in the head with something because he did have a head wound. And then that's what called, caused the hemorrhage. So she killed him too. In 2007, a report in People came out, and friends 
in it described Armstrong as a highly intelligent individual. She was her high school valedictorian and had a master's degree, though she had also been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Rothstein did what was asked of him when Marjorie asked him to fucking hide and dispose of a body, and he kept the corpse in a chest freezer he had in his garage for over five weeks. He painstakingly melted down the murder weapon and scattered it in various places around Erie. It takes a long time to melt down a gun. It's a process. Rothstein claimed he could not execute the full plans, which entailed grinding up the body and disposing of it. I believe they were going to use a wood chipper for that, which that's intense as fuck. He was reaching out to police for help because he was afraid of what Armstrong may do if he refused to grind up the body. Sorry about our dogs, guys. Yeah. We got chickens, we got a pig, we got dogs. It is never quiet in this house. Um, the day after Rothstein's confession about having a fucking body in his freezer. Hold on. Guys, shut up! Fuck. Okay. The day after Rothstein's confession, Marjorie was arrested for the murder of James Roden. Sixteen months later, she pled guilty but mentally ill and was sentenced to seven to twenty years in state prison. By that time, Rothstein was far past caring about what his old girlfriend thought about him because he had given her up to the cops, and he died of lymphoma in July of 2004. So, Marjorie admitted that she was the one that shot Rodin and got her ass locked up, so that part's good. Federal agents investigating the pizza bomb heist were not paying much attention to the murder case of James Roden. It seemed to be a local matter with no connection to their case that they were working. However, in April 2005, authorities got a call from a state police officer who had just met with Armstrong about an unrelated homicide. So, they had kind of come to a standstill with the pizza bomber case, um... They had figured out that Marjorie had killed Rodin, so they had closed that one. And all of a sudden, the guy's working the fucking pizza bomb heist got a call. And it kind of broke it wide open. Relating back to the mock suicide note, where Rothstein had wrote that the James Rodin murder was not like involved or had anything to do with the collar bomb plot was wrong. It had everything to do with that plot. The feds met with Armstrong, and she proposed a deal to the agents. She basically said, like, you know, arrange a transfer from me from the Muncie State Penitentiary, and that's where she was currently being held, to a lower security prison close to Erie called Cambridge Springs. And if they made that transfer happen for her, she would tell them everything she knew. Um, I didn't really understand that, like, why... Do you, can you just move around more freely in a lower security prison? Yeah. Probably got more amenities and shit, too. So it's just better. Yeah. Plus, then she's closer to Erie, too. So easier for people to give her money and shit like that. I don't think anybody was giving her money. Well, me never know. It seemed like everybody kind of thought this lady was crazy and very much disliked her. Gotcha. But yeah, she, she used it in her favor, so she struck a deal with them. They obliged. Um, they got the transfer to happen, so they got her into that lower security prison. And I'm going to go back for a minute. Even before Armstrong's arrest for the James Roden murder, she was a notorious figure, and she was well-known for a string of dead lovers in Erie, like I was talking about earlier. Which, if you've grown up in a small town, which I think Erie is not very big, everybody knows of this type of person or this type of family. Like, everybody has at least one in the small town that you grew up in. Shaver, I'm looking at you. Prather, I'm looking at you. <laughs> um... I'm going to get into a little bit more detail about those two exes. So that first major brush she had with the law came in 1984. She was 35 years old, and that's when she actually went to court for murdering that Robert Thomas by shooting him six times. 
She claimed that she had done it in self-defense and that he was a very abusive man that was basically beating the shit out of her and that's the only way that she could defend herself, which I think six times is a little excessive. Couldn't you also shoot some... Anyways, doesn't... She was lying. Doesn't matter. The jury eventually acquitted her of this crime um, and she walked free. And then it was just four years later that Richard Armstrong had died of that cerebral mm -hmm. hemorrhage. And it was ruled accidental, but all those red flags had rose up in that case. Like I said, he had had that head injury. It was never explained, and the case was never forwarded to that local coroner. So he never even got to take a look at him. Um... Armstrong was known for her intensely rapid mood swings, and she was unable to control her nonstop and sometimes nonsensical rapid-fire speech. So there's footage from her during the trial, and she kind of reminds me of a Charlie Manson, how she talks. She's just like, her outbursts are crazy and all over the place. She was a paranoid narcissist and struggled with her mental health throughout the years, in 1984, investigators found 400 pounds of butter and more than 700 pounds of cheese, nearly all of it rotting, inside her trash-strewn home. Psychiatrists deemed her mentally incompetent seven times before a judge finally ruled she was fit to be tried in the Thomas case, that's her ex-husband, um, that she had shot. So there's, dated, there's history dated back in other court hearings showing that she's not mentally competent. She was a hoarder. She had fucking rotting food in excess in her house. She was just not all there. Armstrong seemed like exactly the type of person who was eccentric, intelligent, and murderous tendencies could allow her to devise a plot that wove all of these individuals that we've spoke about so far together for an overly complicated bank heist. She also seemed like the type of person who would likely be unable to stop herself from telling the world about her brilliant ruse, which investigators were correct about that. While she insisted to federal agents that she was not in any way involved in the plot, she admitted that she knew about it, that she had supplied the kitchen timers, those sunbeam timers that were used in the collar bomb, and that she was within a mile of the bank at the time of the robbery. She also said that Wells, the dead pizza delivery man, was not just a victim, but had been in on the plan and was a willing participant. She asserted that Rothstein, the man who rang officers for the dead body in his freezer, um, of James Roden, who Armstrong had killed, was not only in on the plan, but he was the mastermind of the entire thing. Armstrong was indeed pointing the finger at Rothstein, but at the same time she was implicating herself without even, like, realizing it in her own head. Before even hearing her self-incriminating testimony to police, officers had begun to suspect that she was indeed behind the collar bomb plot and was the mastermind. Investigators had met with four separate informants over the previous weeks who revealed Armstrong had talked to them about the crime in intimate detail, which included her assertions that she had killed Rodin because he was going to tell about the robbery and had um, also helped measure Wells's neck for the bomb. So she had told her husband about the robbery plot because she had a big fucking mouth and something happened and they got in a fight and he said he was going to tell, so she fucking shot him and killed him. A few months after Armstrong had first talked to the feds in 2005, there was another break in the case. A witness came forward to say that an ex-television repairman turned crack dealer, which, what a title to carry with you, bud. He was named Kenneth Barnes, and he was also involved in the plot. Barnes was an old fishing buddy of Armstrong and had spoken too freely about the plan and his brother-in-law had turned him in while Barnes was already in jail on unrelated drug charges. Threatened with even more time behind Barnes, <laughs> behind Barnes, behind bars, Barnes agreed to a deal. He would give a full account of what he knew and talk in exchange for a reduced sentence. So he kind of worked that in his favor as well. He was already in prison, so he might as well talk if it got him out of there sooner. Mm-hmm. Barnes confirmed that Armstrong was indeed the mastermind behind the plot. He claimed that she needed cash, and get this, to pay to have her father murdered because she believed he was um, spending through her inheritance. So, oh, his own money that he works for, he was spending it too quickly. 
Like, are you fucking kidding me, girlfriend? Barnes said he was kept in the dark about many aspects surrounding the plot, including the intent to actually murder Wells. He knew that they were going to scare him and make him think that the bomb was going to go off if he didn't comply, but he didn't know they were actually going to kill him. Even so, many of the aspects of Barnes' accounts corroborated with what agents had already heard, so even the little bit that Barnes was involved with lined up, and finally the investigation was gaining steam. On February 10th, 2006, feds once again met with Armstrong. This is where agents let her know they had enough evidence against her for indictment. She went fucking ballistic. She was, like, banging her fucking fist on the table and screaming at them. But surprisingly, she continued to talk with officers, so she didn't claim up. She even agreed to show them where she was in Erie that day when Wells robbed the bank. Her and Rothstein and, was it Barnes, too, that watched mm -hmm. it happen? Yeah. And they watched all the chaos they caused and just fucking had yeah. a good time. Drank some beer. After showing her location the day of the robbery, she stated that she would not provide any more information on the case until she received an immunity letter. So an immunity letter is just her not getting in trouble, basically. In July 2007, near the four-year anniversary of Wells' death, a news conference on the case was held detailing a huge development. U.S. Attorney Marcy Beth Buchanan stated that the investigation was over. Armstrong and Barnes were charged with carrying out the crime, a plot Armstrong had put into motion. The indictment stated that co-conspirators were involved, Rothstein being one, and Wells, the bomb victim, being the other one. They stated Wells was in on the scheme from the beginning, that he was a willing participant. He had agreed to rob the bank wearing what he believed was a fake bomb. He was told that the scavenger hunt-like directions he was to complete after was merely a ruse to fool the cops, so he wasn't in any danger of dying. If he got caught, he could simply point to the bomb and instructions as evidence, and he was merely a victim following orders. Wells' family was fucking stunned. Like, can you imagine sitting there on, you know, you don't know, you're finding out with everybody and people are accusing your son who got a hole blown in his chest of being a willing participant. One of Brian's sisters, Barbara White, yelled, liar, as Buchanan completed her statement. Oh my god, dogs. Come on now. Hey! Knock it off! Wells' family weren't the only ones that were stunned. Many people were dubious of this assertion. Um, the people close to the case and people following the case, this seemed to produce as many questions as it did answers. Barnes pleaded guilty in September 2008 to the conspiracy and weapons charges involved in the collar bomb plot. He was sentenced to 45 years behind bars, but he agreed to testify against Armstrong in the hopes of getting his sentence reduced. Um, he wasn't afraid of her now because she was locked up forever. A federal judge ruled Armstrong mentally unfit to stand trial. When she finally was deemed ready to face a judge and jury, she was diagnosed with glandular cancer, and the proceedings were put on hold again as she awaited her prognosis. The judge received the doctor's assessment in August 2010. Armstrong had three to seven years to live, so prosecutors opted to press on and put that bitch back on trial. Like, oh, sorry you have cancer, but you're Ooh. still going to have to answer for this shit. Barnes took the stand and told his story about how he was approached uh, to be Armstrong's hitman for hire. Armstrong had offered to hire him to kill her own father for a lump sum of cash sourced from the bank robbery committed by Wells. Armstrong, Barnes said, devised the plan and enlisted a few co-conspirators to help carry it out. Rothstein was one of them, Wells was another, lured in with the promise of a payday. He certainly needed the money. It turned out that the quiet pizza man had a relationship with a prostitute. With the help of his pal Barnes, he bought crack, which he then gave to the prostitute in exchange for sex. Which, this guy was a crack dealer, so yeah. I don't know how trustworthy he is. But that's what he stated. And I don't know why he would... Well, he might want to cover for Marjorie because they were fishing buddies. We'll never know. In the weeks before the robbery, Wells fell into debt with his crack dealers and needed cash. It was only on the afternoon of the crime when he delivered the pizzas to the transmission tower that Wells realized he had been double-crossed and that the bomb was real. He was tackled as he tried to sprint away and he was locked into the device at gunpoint. 
Throughout Barnes's testimony, Armstrong angrily whispered to her attorney. Several times she blurted out, liar, drawing stern warnings from the judge. On October 26th, Armstrong got the opportunity to tell her version of the events. For five and a half fucking hours, over two days, she used the stand as her stage. She ridiculed her lawyer. That's a stupid question, Mr. Sugru. She belittled her prosecutor. If this is the kind of evidence you have against me, I'm telling you, this is a pitiful case. She cried. She yelled. More than 50 times, the judge sought, often um, without achieving it to cut her off she just kept fucking talking the jury didn't buy it after deliberating for 11 hours the seven women and five men returned guilty verdicts on all three charges armed bank robbery conspiracy and using a destructive device in a crime of violence so that was the pizza bomber case the lady who literally got a whole bunch of people to make one guy rob a bank to get money to pay another guy to kill her dad who was spending his own money too quickly what you got oh well last week i screwed up our whole episode because i thought you did wanted to do colts not a colt and i dabbled in the uh the waco siege yeah and then at the end i kind of talked about oklahoma bomber Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna do the oklahoma bombing i love this story well i mean it's horrible but it's a good story uh so the Oklahoma bombing, bombing happened a little after 9 a.m. on April 19th, 1995. And it was uh, a rider, like a rental truck, like a U-Haul rental truck, but rider, like budget and shit like that, and rental right. trucks. And it was uh, packed full of explosives. So uh, the dude just kind of parked it outside that alfred p murr federal building in oklahoma city oklahoma wasn't it like in one of those little tiny baby turnouts because are you gonna go into this no i'm not really gonna go into where it was parked and shit like can that. i go into it really quick? sure okay I remember so there was underground parking yeah. and the original plan was for him to go into the underground parking but the dude was so dumb that he didn't measure the height of the truck so when he showed up there that morning he realized he wouldn't fit so then he frantically drove in circles around the building for, like, I don't know how long, and then finally just dumped it at a little baby turnout just right off the main street. So it wasn't even, like, it was kind of far away from the building yeah. compared to where he wanted to be. Sorry, But continue. it doesn't really matter because the explosive was massive. Yeah. And it cleared hundreds of buildings, and uh, 168 people died, and hundreds were more or were injured. And he parked right by the daycare that was on site for that building. It was in the building, so even if he parked underneath. I'm just saying, like, it was yeah, I right get, there. Yeah, I get it. And the, the blast was set off by an anti-government militant, Timothy McVeigh. Little bitch. Yeah, who actually in 2001 was executed for his crimes. And his co-conspirator, uh, Terry Nichols, uh, was sentenced to life in prison. Up until 9-11 in 2001, the Oklahoma City bomber was actually one of the worst terrorist attacks taking place on U.S. soil. How many people? 168 and hundreds more were injured. Oh, that's so scary. The powerful explosion blew off the entire north wall of the building. The emergency crews raced to Oklahoma City for access or from across the county. Sorry. <laughs> from access the county. <laughs> from across the <laughs> county. And when rescue efforts finally ended two weeks later, the death toll was 168. Why is it really a rescue effort more than a couple days after? Isn't it just like well, a corpse recovery? Well, you never know. Some people could have survived and they could just be trapped underneath the rubble. Kind of like what happened in 9-11. Don't you only live three or maybe four, three days without water? But yeah. they're, what I was pretty much trying to state was that, you know, it took them two weeks to clear the scene and get the full body count. Okay, gotcha. And uh, in the list of deceased included 19 young children who were in the building's daycare. No. Yeah. And there's more, actually, there's 650 other people who were injured, and the fucking bomb just damaged or destroyed about 300 buildings in the media area. 
Which one was it? Or both? Uh, what do you mean? Either damaged or destroyed? Well, there's just 300 buildings either all the way destroyed or half-ass damaged. That's a lot of fucking yeah. bomb juice. It's a big-ass bomb. <laughs> so, a little bit of a backstory on the Alfred P. Murr Federal Building. Murr? Murr. Murr? I'm pretty sure that's how you say it, right? M-U-R-R-A-H. Murr. Murrah. M-U-R-R-A-H. Murrah. Murr. Murrah. Murrah. Okay, Murrah. <laughs> My bad. Uh, the building opened in 1977, and it was named after an Oklahoma native who became one of the youngest federal judges in U.S. history. Yeehaw! Yup, and he was appointed by, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1936. That's kind of cool, actually. And he died in 1975 at age 71. So, thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> Alright, little backstory on our homeboy, the bomber, Timothy McVeigh. There was a massive hunt for the bomber... And, uh, sorry, on April 21st, an eyewitness described, or description led authorities to charge Timothy, a former U.S. Army soldier. And, uh, McVeigh was already in jail, having been stopped a little more than, an, or, yeah, a little more than an hour after the bombing for traffic violations. <laughs> And then arrested for unlawfully carrying a handgun. Uh, shortly before he was released from jail, he was identified as a prime suspect in the bombing and charged. That same day, Terry Nichols, an associate, was, uh, he actually surrendered in Kansas. Really quick. I don't know this. Hopefully you do. So was it, he was arrested just for the fact that he had a gun that wasn't registered to him that he was in possession of in his car? Yeah, it's a misdemeanor for your first charge. So any of my guns, if they're not registered to me and I had them in my car, I would go to jail? Mm-hmm. Really? Probably. Oh. You go to jail booked for that and then... Asking for a friend? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> And then they'd take your guns and all that crap. Okay, so yeah, at this point they had no idea. But his was loaded. But still, so they just thought this your... guy was in jail yeah. for having a loaded gun. And yeah. yeah, mine would never be loaded. But... Yep, so uh, both the men's were... Uh, both the men's? Yeah, both <laughs> men, my bad, were members of a radical right-wing survivalist group based in Michigan. <laughs> yep. Uh, on August 8th, Michael Fort. Forter? Forter? Fortier? Fortier. Who knew, uh, of uh, who knew of McVeigh's plans to bomb the federal building agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence. Two days later, McVeigh and Nichols were, uh, they were pretty much charged with murder and unlawful use of explosives. Were Which, they charged with murder a hundred and some odd times over, or just like mass murder? Mass murder. Okay. But I don't, I think McVeigh was, Nicholas went down for uh, association, I believe. McVeigh looks like a little bitch, too. McVeigh looks crazy. He looks like a little bitch. So, uh, McVeigh, while he was still in his teens, uh, was raised in western New York. He was acquitted of... Uh, couple gun charges and began honing in on survivalist skills and he believed he was like I guess it was going to be necessary for those survival skills because there was going to be another cold war and that there was going to be a showdown with the Soviet unions Good so he was up in here. Okay. yeah he was getting all crazy yeah he actually graduated high school David and Boone, Daniel Boone wait. Daniel Boone yeah <laughs> there you go he uh, graduated high school in 86, and in 88, he enlisted in the Army. Uh, he actually proved to be disciplined and meticulous soldier, or, and a meticulous soldier. Uh, while in the military, McVeigh befriended fellow soldier Nicholas. So I guess that's when those two became buddies, whereas in the Army, when they got out, they went into that radical survivalist group together, and... Being all crazy, doing I mean, drugs, I smoking I follow weed. the timeline, but I don't huh? understand it. I said I follow the timeline, but I don't understand it. Understand what? Just their thought process oh. and belief systems. Yeah. They're older cats, though, too, so. It's I like don't 70s care. and shit like that, so. 
It doesn't matter how old you are, hate is hate. Well, no, nah, yeah, I'm not preaching that. If you're a violent person, you bring violence to your religion. Same with hate. If you're a hateful person, you bring hate to your religion. Yeah, they just both seem like dicks. And they both seem like people who join the military for the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? They yeah. join the military because they wanted to carry a gun and kill people, not because they wanted to defend their country. Mm-hmm. So, pretty much, McVeigh and Nicholas, they had the same interest in the survivalist crazy nut job bullshit. So, in 91, McVeigh served in uh, the Persian Gulf War. He was decorated with several medals for his military service. However, failing to qualify for a special forces program, McVeigh uh, accepted the Army's offer for like early discharge. So he got an honorable discharge and sent cheat. Yeah, because I'm assuming that it was when he was trying to go into the special forces program, it was probably right at the end of his service. So then when he got denied for special forces he's he like, said i'm eh, not gonna i don't want to be here exactly anymore. oh my god yeah. so he didn't enlist or, or you know re-enlist or anything like that okay so that all fell out and he left in 91 and at that time uh the military was downsizing after the collapse of the uh, soviet union and all the other bullshit of the cold war so. so what, it was like military layoff season? Yeah, pretty much. It was oh the end God. of the war, and they're like, yeah, we have too many people, we can't pay you all. You Bye. gave your life, but you can just yeah. go away now. Thanks. So um, uh, McVeigh, he shifted his ideology and started, uh, he pretty much formed a hatred for foreign communist governments. He was just angry. He was. And he was really, I guess, like, good would be suspicious of the U.S. government, and uh, especially as a new leader, Bill Clinton, elected in 93, I believe, or 92, sorry. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I wanted to, but I didn't. I mean, I didn't know that uh, me coming in a woman's mouth was sexual relations. I wasn't lying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The other, it was kind of weird because I remember that whole campaign and it was platformed on uh, gun control and shit like that, and that's why how he went won the presidency. So with that happening, and I don't know, it was kind of. I, I think underst- McVeigh was just all pissy. You know, we got this little fucking bitch boy and fucking president. He doesn't want guns, and you know what I mean, shit like that. And after we just fought this goddamn war, you know, shit. Still, just. The thought process yeah. is just so scary. This dude was crazy. So McVeigh and Nichols, uh, they're radicals. And they actually had a crazy event on August 92 where they had a shootout at Ruby Ridge, Ohio, between federal agents and survivalist Randy Weaver at his rural cabin. And the Waco siege of April 93, uh, in which 75 men of the Branch Division religious group near Waco, Texas, died. And Our we talked about connection. that one. Yup. And sorry, and they, Nicholas and McVeigh were upset about those two incidences. They weren't involved in those two incidences, sorry. They're just all pissy about them, and that's what started them to they hate the government. They were pissed off at the government. Exactly, about yeah, because the federal agents were the ones that botched the fucking Waco siege and all right. that crap, and then that shootout at the in uh, Idaho was right. with federal agents. So they're just all pissy. You know, they're killing us off. They don't want us to live this way. Shit. They and I think that they really thought that they were going to like make a difference with killing a bunch of people that yeah. are just employees of the. So uh, McVeigh, he actually planned the whole attack on the, Mur, um, what do we call it? Mur, Mura, Mura, Mura building. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Which housed the regional office of federal agents for the Drug Enforced Agency and Secret Service of Bureau. Of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. So ATF. The ATF and, and explosives. FBI. Yeah. <laughs> and agents, uh, agent, the agency that had launched the initial raid on the branch compound. So they're really pissed off about that. Mm-hmm. If they weren't already pissed off, they're really pissed off. So 
April 19th was, or 95, was the second, or the two-year anniversary of the Waco siege. So that's when McVeigh parked the rental truck loaded with diesel fuel, fertilizer, mixture bomb outside of the building and fled. I didn't realize that it was that stuff in the back of the car. It's that easy to fucking make Mm. something that explodes that big. Yep. So put some cow poop and some gasoline and mix it together no, it and light was, it? There was nitrate and shit like that. You probably had okay. a timer and a blasting cap on them, you know. Okay. I don't I didn't get into the whole making of bomb shit like you did. Yeah. Uh so it took two years for McVeigh and Nicholas to get convicted. And they were actually convicted of eleven accounts of uh you know different charges just so the DA could, yeah, exactly so the DA could fucking pick up on at least a couple of them that hold the highest sentence and shit like that mm-hmm. I think uh, mass murder would be the yeah. biggest ever in is that yeah that's domestic terrorism yeah but that you gotta remember too certain things hold different penalties yeah right so they're trying to seek the death penalty for McVeigh obviously because he was mastermind behind it Nicholas mm-hmm. If he cooperated, has fight against McVeigh, then he got a you know life sentence. Anyways, it was on uh, June second, nineteen ninety seven, is when they were convicted, and uh, on August fourteenth is the when the death penalty formed uh, was formally imposed. So that's when the death penalty was actually you know going going to be stick or was stuck. Okay. Uh, the following years, uh, Fortier, who had uh, met McVeigh in the army, was sentenced to 12 years in prison for failing to warn authorities about the bombing because good. he knew about the whole thing. That's the first time I've ever heard of that in a yeah. case before. Fortier, That's uh, Fortier was actually released in 2007 and entered the witness program oh damn protection program. witness protection program yeah so in december of 97 nicholas was found guilty on one count of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter involuntary manslaughter mm-hmm, for killing federal law enforcement personnel how is that involuntary that was premeditated i don't, I don't know i don't know if, i don't know I don't That's know if he nuts. meant to, or he claimed to mean, mean to kill anybody because he didn't have anything to do with the bomb. Oh, wait, I'm He confused. was just associated with uh, McVeigh. Okay, my bad. They helped each other, you know, obviously they were both pissed off, and he kind of, like, amped up McVeigh and I got him going. I thought he knew about it. He did. No, he knew about the whole thing. But he didn't do anything. Not necessarily, because McVeigh was the one who made the bomb. I think Nichols kind of... Helped him get the supplies and shit and rent the vehicle and stuff like that. But I don't think he wasn't there when he dropped off the van. He wasn't, you know, what a anything weird like case. that. It was. Um, so December 97, he was found guilty uh, and was sentenced to life in prison. In 2004, he was tried on state charges in Oklahoma for con- and, and convicted of 161 counts of first degree murder including uh, fatal homicide. He will, he received 161 consecutive life-term sentences in prison. Damn, son. Yeah, so they did finally come after him and get him for all those murders. Wow. And then in December 2000, McVeigh asked a federal judge to stop all appeals for his conviction and <laughs> set his date for execution. <gasps> oh, shit! Yeah, the request was granted on June 11, 2001. That judge is petty yeah. as fuck, and the I fuck, love that. The fucked up part is, dude, McVeigh was 33. Good. He was a young kid. Die! And he died of lethal injection in Indiana. He was the first federal prisoner to be sentenced to death since 63. Damn, that says something. Yeah. Uh, in May 1995, the Murrah building had, uh, or was demolished uh, for safety reasons, mm-hmm. 
and the Oklahoma City National Memorial Museum later opened a site, kind of like Ground Zero status thing. I was just about to yeah. say, like the 9-11 site. Yep, and that's what I got on the Oklahoma bomber. I know there's a lot more people. I'm sorry, but my we wife has a hour. really fucking long time doing her goddamn shit, so <laughs> this is what you get, all right? Be happy. Hopefully you thought this episode was the bomb, but um Sorry we kind of um, had to power through it. We had a lot of information to get to, both of us. But if you could please, please, please follow us on Facebook, Booze, Bullshit, and True Crime. Give our page a like, interact with us, comment, message me, say hi. Instagram, Booze, Bullshit, and True Crime as well. If you have a story, um paranormal um you know hometown true crime shit found in walls anything spooky ooky, booze bs and true crime at gmail.com that's booze bs and true crime at gmail.com um boom goes the dynamite later bye